0: All right, thanks everyone for coming. I am Stephen Adubato, I host Cracks in Postmodernity, and this is Holy Lit. So to start things off, according to the philosopher Charles Taylor, in eras past, the natural world testified to divine purpose and action. The great events in this natural order, storms, droughts, floods, plagues, as well as years of exceptional fertility and flourishing, were seen as acts of God as the now-dead metaphor of our legal language still bears witness. Beyond that, the life of various associations, which made up society, parishes, boroughs, guilds, and so on, were interwoven with ritual and worship. People lived in an enchanted world. One could not but encounter God everywhere. Taylor goes on to claim that after the dawn of the Enlightenment, the scientific revolution, and mass industrialization, there is a, quote, widespread sense of loss here. If not always of God, then at least of meaning. And he insists that we are living in a disenchanted age, borrowing a phrase from the sociologist Max Weber. The social commentator Joseph Epstein claims that on the contrary, good novels are always informing us that life is more various, richer, more surprising, more bizarre than we had thought. He continues to say that the novel is the book of life. More than any other literary form, the novel is best able to accommodate the messiness of detail that life presents. The novel, for those who love it, is a literary form of forms. So we invited these speakers here because their novels testify to how how literature can serve as an an antidote to the feeling of disenchantment. Furthermore, each of your novels uh, in a very distinct way spoke to me on a personal level. Um, between the, the entertaining, the comical nature in some parts of your books, but also the deep sense of consolation, the hopefulness that they present readers. So, to introduce our speakers, we have Jordan Castro. He's the author of The Novelist, and his second novel, Muscle Man, is forthcoming in 2025 from Catapult, which we're very excited for. So, that's here for Jordan. And next, we have Matthew P. Binder. He's the author of the novels Pure, Cosmo Club, Pure Cosmos Club, which is his latest, The Absolved, and High in the Streets. And he is also a primary member of the recording project Bang-Bang Jet Away. Is that right? Bang-Bang Jet, bang, bang, jet away. So Let's hear it for Matthew. <laughs> and lastly, we have Tara Isabella Burton. She wrote the novel Social Creature, The World Cannot Give, and most recently, Here in Avalon, as well as the nonfiction books Strange Rights* and Self Made. She's currently working on a history of magic and modernity to be published by Convergent in late 2025, which we're also looking forward to. Her fiction and nonfiction have appeared in The New York Times, National Geographic, Granta, The Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and many more. So let's hear it for Tara. OK, so we're going to start with basics. First, I want to ask you all why, in the first place, do you write novels? And what role has writing novels played in your own search for something greater, for
1: something more in life? All right. Um, I never had any uh, ambition to write novels growing up. Uh, I played in some like touring bands in my 20s, and then um, I got like a, my first like proper day job uh, working in solar energy when I was probably like 27, 28. And I, I did that for a couple of years and uh, uh, I guess I wasn't feeling very creatively fulfilled. And then uh, one day uh, I was at, in Albuquerque where I'm from and I was taking a road trip from uh, Albuquerque back to San, or to San Diego, California with my friend Skip. And he was uh, very tired and sick and he required uh, absolute silence in the car so he laid down in the back seat and I didn't have like headphones or anything so I was driving for 13 hours and uh, I plotted out a a novel I never thought about writing a novel before that and then uh, I got back to San Diego and uh, I quit my job and uh, I spent a year writing the novel and then uh, never got published and I wrote another novel didn't get published but after that I was writing novels so yeah that's how it started
2: yeah, I feel like I wrestle this with this a lot because I'm still not 100% convinced that writing novels is a is a worthy moral endeavor. I feel like I, I constantly convince myself that it's not, and it's actually the tension between that that makes me love writing novels because for me, writing a novel is always about coming up against the limits of what storytelling can do. Like All of the novels that I love most are about where the limits of what a novel can be, and that tension between, and I, I think what you said, Stephen, about the kind of the overflow of life, the kind of prolific, the polyphonic nature of reality is is sort of incredibly, like, what we're always trying to grasp and what the narrative form can't, and so I, I kind of, I write novels to justify novels being written, but for me, like, the tragedy of of all novels is that you no narrative is really true. So, yeah,
3: that's where I'm at. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I don't know how to answer this. I like writing novels. Um, and ever since I was young, <clears throat> I've sort of wanted to write. I started, when I was in like third grade, I remember we, in Ohio, we had these like state proficiency tests. Um, and uh, w- w- the the subject was like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, and I wrote about how I wanted to be a rapper because at the time, Eminem um, and Ludacris were sort of um, who I wanted to be. And I got home and I told my dad, and my dad was like, um, he was like, if you want to be a rapper, you know, rap for me. And so he like laid on my bed and I rapped, lose yourself for him. (laughs) And he was like, if you're going to be a rapper, you got to get more into it. Um, And I think, I don't want to say that killed my dream of being a rapper. um, uh, But with a novel, you don't have to get more into it. You know what I mean? You can just kind of just be there working on it over time. Um, and so I think, uh, that may have something to do with it. I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, I just, I, I like writing novels, that works,
0: that works. so can you do us a favor? Give us a gist of what your latest novel is about and then tell us what was the experience
2: like writing it? Uh, yeah, so my, my latest novel is called here in Avalon, uh, it just came out a couple of weeks ago. Is about two uh, adult sisters in contemporary New York City who, one by one, fall under the spell of a mysterious, immersive theater cabaret troupe that may or may not be a cult. Uh, and it's really about the search for enchantment and all that stuff. So, uh, thematic. Uh, writing it was awful. Writing is the worst, thing, most miserable thing I've done my entire life. Uh, I kept writing drafts that were like unreadably bad and throwing them out from scratch and starting over. And this is this is how I write anyway. I always sort of bin drafts i just don't normally bin quite so many drafts with like quite a sense of despair uh and finally i um like turned off my phone for a month and i got a flip phone and i lived in complete seclusion and entered a kind of manic stage and then um the book was done i didn't hate it but um i I think one of the strangest things about writing is my, my first two novels were sort of much more much bleaker much darker and this was the originally I thought it'd be easy. I was like, it's going to be the happy novel. How hard can it be? Uh, And it turns out that writing something that is sort of in the genre of sort of small R romance or capital R romance, I don't know whether the romantic or the comic rather than the tragic uh, is much harder because I think hope, unearned hope, feels really, really cheap, but it was important to me that there be a kind of hopefulness in tone to the book and to have that not feel... uh, unearned or untrue, required a kind of act of faith on my part that clearly took a lot of time and no access to Reddit. So, yeah. um,
1: My last novel, it's called Pure Cosmos Club. It came out last summer. Uh, roughly, it's sort of about a um, struggling painter in New York whose uh, sort of friend, nemesis, is uh, also an artist who's but happens to be like the son of like a billionaire hedge fund manager, so of course that guy's art career is going great. And uh, the struggling artist meets like a, a new age guru type at a party in the Hamptons, and sort of falls under the influence of this guy. And uh, this guy, the, the guru, is uh, sort of using him to get to the uh, to the rich kid. And uh, I, I guess the experience of writing it was um, I had moved to New York. And I had lived in, uh, like, I'm from New Mexico, I lived in New Mexico for a long time, and I lived in San Diego, uh, and, I, and I just didn't have, uh, in, in, my, in my prior life, I just didn't have, like, any uh, exposure to, like, Manhattan, and uh, big art, big money, uh, big culture, um, and I, I guess I started dating this woman who was, like, very high up in, like, luxury fashion, and so she I was sort of thrown into this world, uh, and I was very curious about it, and uh, got exposed to a lot of interesting stuff. And uh, then I got fired from my job, and so I thought I would make it good use of that time. Uh, so I started Pure Cosmos Club, and um, the experience of writing it was—I uh, don't really know. I don't, I don't. I don't. It's hard to remember. I, I, I sort of feel like I wrote it in like a little bit of a fever, and. Um, so yeah, maybe as we get into this, I'll recall what it
3: was like to write it. Um, yeah, my novel is called The Novelist. Um, and it's about, it takes place over the course of a couple of hours, um, where this guy is sort of trying and failing to write uh, and keeps getting distracted by <coughs> social media and, and things like that. Um, and so you know, it contains a lot of different digressions and so on. Um, and the experience of writing it I mean, was, was kind of strange. I mean, I didn't set out to write a novel. Um, it started as a sort of rant about one of my friends who became sort of possessed by, um, uh, we'll say a, um, ideology and, um, and, uh, you know, and it, the, the experience of writing it was, was sort of interesting because I'm, I started writing this thing, you know, where I'm, I'm, I'm like chimping out on, on this guy that I know and I'm just kind of like, oh yeah, feeling so self-righteous and all this stuff. And I'm like, I'm going to pwn him in this book and whatever. And, <laughs> but the thing is, is that the novel became something totally other than what I set out to do. Um, and one of the things, and I guess this is something that I like so much about the novel, is that like, um, Rene Girard, a, a, a great Catholic uh, uh, thinker, has this idea that the first draft of, of, of novels is generally an attempt at self-justification. And that the great novelists, what they're able to do is, is, is sort of look at the draft that they've written, um, see how it's kind of self-justifying cope, and, um, you know, and, then, and then he says they're able to, to eventually kind of die to themselves, and describe the evil of the other from within, you know. So, so whereas before, maybe when, you know, I was like in my case, I was you know trying to just kind of, uh, you know, I was just really, really like feeling, uh, feeling great about just uh, proving my my ex friend totally wrong, um, you know. And in reality, I was like, okay, no, this, this narrator is, is sort of scapegoating this guy, and he has his own sort of insecurities or, or, or other kind of darker motivations lurking beneath, um, um, which is like animating the scorn. Um, and so I think it, it was this. Um, um, this thing of like you know, Gerard talks about no, certain novelists having like a uh, a novelistic conversion, um, and and it, and it really was this kind of thing. And the same thing happened with my second novel uh, uh, that I just finished too, where like I set out to write a certain novel, uh, sort of confronted myself there, and then realized that I was uh, you know that something else was going on. So and I I, I really enjoy that 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 pro- or. In retrospect, I think that process is, is um, uh, has been has been fruitful.
0: So all of your novels have very distinct, very unique plots. But what I think they all have in common is the, the characters experience some sense of wonder, some sense of enchantment. So that's the theme of tonight's panel. Um, so you know Tara here in Aval, and here in Avalon, Cecilia is attracted to this thing that might be a cult, might not be. We're not sure. But now, like the way that you describe the music that they play on this boat, the the 1920s vintage costumes that they're wearing is a source of enchantment for her Um, in pure cosmos club paul he's an artist so that for him is a a source of wonder but also he also meets a kind of cult-like figure who exudes this kind of uh this aura that draws him in and with the novelist it's interesting because this guy is just sitting at his kitchen table trying to write a story keeps getting distracted by twitter But then the little mundane things that are part of his daily ritual kind of has a liturgical dimension to it. So when he looks out the window, sees the sun brewing his coffee, even the pooping scenes, which, you know, turns some people off. But when you look at it, I mean, some people have complained to me. I was not upset, though. I was not upset. But no, but in our podcast interview, we mentioned that there is an old Hebrew prayer after you poop, which is giving thanks to God for, like, the gift of the body functioning. So, like... Even going to poop is something sacred, something full of enchantment. Um, but something that I see mostly in, in Tara and Matthew's books, you have these characters who kind of feel outcasted from the quote unquote normie world. Um, they're, they're problematic, they're weird, they have all these complexes. And you see that, I don't know, like what was really beautiful to me is that their fragility comes out and rather than trying to construct these walls to protect themselves, to put up this facade and act normal, they kind of embrace it and yes they get into these kind of you know problematic cults cultish uh, groups but again the point is that like you're featuring these these people who are fully human who are fragile who have their issues but you're really giving them a space to explore that so i'm wondering if you guys can comment a little bit on how the novel can be a tool for us to to face our fragility as human beings to not have to construct these walls and act like we got it all together we got it all figured out
1: I think with um, my book, like my main character, he sort of operates uh, within the strictures of like a sort of a different ethical framework than everybody else. And part of what I was exploring was like uh, what happens when this guy who has sort of a, a an altered worldview tries to navigate uh, sort of like the normal world or. The normal world being big art world, I guess, in, in the book. But this sort of no- different world, like the normal world of like sort of like this like profane morality, and like uh, I think a um, a lot of readers when they're first reading the book, they think that like uh, this guy's got like this very like divided mind, and they're 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 like I think uh, they're they're s- suspicious that this whole thing is gonna fall apart because this the, the main character he's uh, he he. he, he his behaviors and his actions are so odd, uh, but in reality, like there is like a coherence to it, and it's very like cohesive, and there's an internal logic to it. And uh, basically, like when I was writing it, the, the fund, like what, what the most important thing was for me to do uh, was to develop like a sort of novel set of criteria that sort of uh, governs this guy's uh, behavior and and, and actions. And um, I think I got lost what the question was.
0: Oh, like how yeah. novels can help us to embrace like,
1: work? Oh, yeah, yeah. So I guess it was probably me like exploring uh, things that are sort of inside of me that are outside of normal and uh, um, extrapolating that onto the page.
2: I think one of my firmest commitments as a novel is that they are like, especially as a Christian novelist, is that I don't believe that there ought to be any character in a book that's sort of a plot device or like an instrument or a figure of fun. And one of the the things that I love most about writing fiction is finding those those details in, in a person that uh, don't just sort of humanize them, but at their very best can take a person who is easily dismissed or is easily uh, kind of seen as a plot device and suddenly you know we know we know something actual about them not just some sort of generic hand wavy like they're this kind of person or they fit into this category suddenly they're real and that moment of recognition uh, for me is one of one of the most sort of beautiful things that a novel can do and in this this book in particular um so much of Avalon was this tension between you know it's a sort of standard it's, it's it's very much inspired by the fairy tale plot there's there's you know there's two sisters and they're quite different and they enter something that is sort of metaphorically if not literally an enchanted realm and they come out of it and the tension of the first half of the book uh is you know how do you get the sensible person to leave her entire life behind and choose something kind of strange and wondrous uh but that's only half of the story and i think the the that that's the sort of in some sense, I worried about that part being too cheap because it's, it's easy to make fun of, like, tech bros having startups. Uh, and it's easy to make fun of wellness apps. And one of the the harder parts for me was, you know, you, we get these characters out of this real world they've left behind, and then the question is, okay, but what brings them back? Like, there is, to my knowledge, almost no sort of resolved fairy tale where human characters remain forever in fairyland unless you're kind of... Doing a very different sort of sad possession story, like um, Yeats's "Land of Heart's Desire," and so the question becomes: All right, you know, for the first half of the novel, we've gotten these these characters—one more obviously countercultural, one more sort of ostensibly normie—out of this world that is that is not enchanted enough, not beautiful enough, not full enough of the overflow of life, except. That is the real world, and so for me the, the challenge was kind of how do you how do you c- convince readers that this is all worth leaving behind halfway through the book, and then what might what might be worth exist what might be worth coming back to, which is sort of the same question as is white life worth living, which if you're trying to ask yourself that every single day while well, you're sort of feeling a bit depressed about your writing anyway, is a very difficult proposition. Um, but I think I'm really grateful. I hadn't heard the, the quotation about the sort of book of life and the novel that you said, Stephen, but I think that's exactly right, that the kind of vision of the world as a place that is enchanted by virtue of being a world, not enchanted by virtue of some overlay upon it or some magic spell upon it or some illusion that transforms it, that there is, some, like that reality has sufficient weight to encourage us to hope. Um, I think that that's, that's what at least, I won't say all good novels because I, I wanna leave open the fact that they're very effective artistically novels by like bleak nihilists. Uh, but I think as someone with a moral vision of the novel, I do think the the idea that the like the novel is, is, is always self-defeating because the world is better than the novel. And that's what the novel can point to by being always a little bit unfinished. So that's my answer. Here
3: you go, Jordan that was a great answer yeah i um um yeah you know i mean the question of how a novel can help one like embrace this or that or or whatever is is you know i don't know i mean i don't i don't don't know i think there's a way of like approaching the novel whether it's reading or writing in this kind of fundamentally therapeutic mode which i completely reject i think that like um that that is like a self-serving kind of um uh ridiculous endeavor um, it will let you down if anyone in here is thinking that writing or reading novels is going to um, you know bust their life wide open. Um, <clears throat> I don't know you can uh, yeah. um, but I, I, um, but I, so I think I think you know, but this question of of kind of like um, well actually, I was also thinking it would be funny, you know you're, it would be funny to have a novel where it's just some some like guy doing great stuff like being normal and helpful and whatever. and it wouldn't work as a novel, I don't think um, in part because um, you know, I think that there is, um, well, there's this tension between, um, you know, on the one hand, writing realistically, um, you know, sort of, you, you know, you talked about not quite humanizing characters, but like, you know, writing writing with grace or with, um, you know, uh, truthfully um, about kind of imperfections and so on. But I think that this can like sometimes tilt into a kind of like fetish for. Um, uh, you know, one's faults or one's failings or something like that, you know. Um, and, I, and and for me, like, um, what was interesting to try to do, you know, some of my favorite novels are like, um, I would say they don't have wonder in them so much as like anti wonder, you know, like, you know, like where there's Raskolnikov, like, hacking this old lady to death, or, you know, Newton Hampson's Hunger, where this guy is walking around hungry, um, self sabotaging every moment, um, you know, but it's infused with this perspective that illuminates something about it. Um, that can then um, teach us something about, about the world or ourselves um, or something like that. Um, and I never, I've never, i never in writing or, or reading kind of thought of the language of like outcasts or something like that. Um, but I do love, there's a Pope Francis quote, you know, where he says, the child, uh, the son of God became man um, to show that every, 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 it's this, the son of God became an outcast to show that every outcast is a child of God. And I think that like, there's something about, um, um you know the christian story and, and and jesus in particular um you know sort of taking on human form and kind of like you know milling about with uh, the tax collectors and the prostitutes and so on um that, that that you know but infusing it with a with a kind of grace and a, and a kind of divine perspective um that i think um i don't want to say I, I i hope to attain that in, in in the novel or something like that or something that 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 that, that bold but maybe i do you know it it, it um um, yeah, there's, there's 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 something there, I don't know.
0: Yeah, and I, kind of continuing on this note about the, the outcasts, the um, the kind of weird people that are that are sometimes featured in literature. I mean, right now, when we look at the internet, you see this kind of juxtaposition between the normies, the NPCs, and then people who are whatever you want to call them, people who are red-pilled, people who are based, um, the BPD, art hoes, whatever, all of the above. Um, but a lot of this discourse isn't shrouded in some kind of religious, spiritual language. I mean, you have some of it is explicitly monotheistic, some of it is like kind of pagan adjacent. You have a lot of Nietzschean stuff, um, like the, the Nietzschean jewel of rationality, conventional understandings of reason. So I'm wondering, can you comment on what do you see in this this religious turn within the in the internet discourse? What are some of the upsides? What are some of the pitfalls of it? What do you make of it?
2: Um, I think I'm both interested in and deeply suspicious of it, uh, for, which is just, I think my in, like instinctive aesthetic pull is towards it, which is why I sort of want to react against my own instinctive pull. Again, as the fact that I'm a novelist who isn't sure about writing novels, I feel it's coming from the same place. Um, I think I think the best version, the most charitable version, is something along the lines of, the hunger for transcendence is real, the sense of a desire for connection to a reality that is sort of horizontal, temporally, that there's a connection to sort of the past as something that is a a well and a fountain and a connection to the future that is not simply nihilistic. All of these are deep, wonderful impulses that I think do come into relief in a so-called secular age, especially when, so much of contemporary uh, wider spiritual discourse tends to be of the like wellness see, you do you, you live your best life, like your desires are what matters. Uh, I think there is something attractive and right to want to have a corrective. That that is, there is something that is given to us that we cannot control. And there's something true about human life that is about contingency. But uh, A, A, the internet destroys everything, B, like human nature, we destroy everything about ourselves. Uh, And I think that the kind of fetishization of something that is pragmatically like based or trad or whatever words you want to use to describe it, uh, when, when, when it's liked for its own sake, I think the risk is, is that it becomes fetishized and uh, also does not no longer bears relation to the more important question is, is this true? Because if we're only kind of interested in, aestheticized Catholicism or anything else uh because of its sort of power to like own the normies or or to to take us out of some boring liberal order then all we're basically doing is saying like these memes are better than those memes but nothing really means anything and it's all just sort of power plays and aesthetics and then we're exactly back where we started just with more incense Um, and but I don't I don't want to kind of be too harsh on either on a what I think is a good desire for transcendence and I don't know that there's any other than like my deep distrust of the the internet and social media as sort of mechanisms for human wickedness I don't know that there's like a more widespread corruption of the hunger for religion in this particular place on time than there is ever a kind of corruption of human hungers for the good that we constantly get in our own way about um i do think like most evil and most sin to to if we're going to speak in that register is a perversion of the good and that there's always like the question is like what is the good that this is tending toward uh and how do we fall away from it and i think specifically i, I, I your language about npcs points to this the desire to like see ourselves as singular which is so tied up with the idea of like seeing oneself as the hero of the novel or like main character syndrome to use like the modern term but like you know Julien sorel and then the red and the black or these sort of novelistic figures that want to be the novelistic protagonists and that itself is a kind of horrible thing that human beings do. We wanna be special and to be special demands that other people are not special or they're not special like us or in the super special secret way that only we know. And again, novels are great at exploring this precise problem because so so much of the structure of the novel is about the question of who gets to be uh the novelist, she said, looking at Jordan intensely. Uh you can answer that or Matthew, I don't know. I just accidentally said the title of your book, so
3: yeah um yeah I don't know I, so I, I, um, I uh, a lot gets said I think about the online discourse and and and, and this and that um, you know people talk about the incentive structures of, of Twitter or you know, um, yeah, this kind of all boils down to a war of like aesthetics or or you know who can dunk on who better and all this kind of thing. Um, but one of the things that I've been thinking about lately is how, something happens um, on the screen, you know, the screen is sort of this very visual image based um, situation, um, where I notice that a lot of the kind of like discourse online tends toward the same tone, where people will be using the same, I mean, even this language, right, it spreads mimetically, the tone spreads mimetically, and it seems almost like a lot of the discourse is happening by anonymities, and not just like, People who are anonymous online, but just like actual anonymities where they're where they're kind of um, um, propagating a sort of like toneless um, ideology or something like that. And I think part of this, I was watching a, a, a talk the other day uh, with like Joshua Cohen and Juno Diaz and some other people, and 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 Josh was talking about how he thinks that um, in contemporary literature we've lost this sense of voice. That people are so used to seeing things on a screen. Um, you know they're so used to using their, their eyes and their hand that they've forgotten that the voice has to do with the mouth and the ear. Um, and for me, like a novel is uniquely sort of capable of um, you know uh, uh, portraying a, a particular voice. Um, you know, and, and, and the voice is important. I mean, the discourse is, is sort of this voiceless void where um, you know everything is just kind of visual or, or, or whatever. You know, but the, the voice is. I mean, God speaks. You know, Jesus speaks. You know, the, 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 there's something about a particular voice you know or like a particular texture of consciousness that i think gets lost in internet discourse and that can be sort of like reclaimed in the novel um um, you know and so i mean i you know and so i i I tend to try i mean to you know when i have this kind of like dirty impulse to like jump online and like spar to kind of just save that energy to work on a novel you know and, and 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 um because I think that the, that that the novel, uh, yeah has like higher higher possibilities. Um, and so I guess that's that's partly how I, how I feel
1: about uh, yeah, about the online online discourse. Um, I guess I'm pretty I'm not super online at all. Like sometimes Steven and I will get together. And we'll have a conversation. I I don't know anything what he's talking about. And he makes all these references, and I'm like, Steve, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he he looks at me like I'm insane. But I guess, you know, uh, I think, sort of in like this secular, contemporary society, culture, especially in like in a very cosmopolitan city like New York, uh, things like tradition and faith and. Things that sort of historically like gave people bearings uh, are sometimes looked at as anathema to like progress and sort of retrograde and backwards. And um, you know, I, I sort of think about like what does all this progress like lead to? And uh, you know, like living in New York City, it's you know it seems like status and money are kind of the the core values a lot of the time. And so. Yeah, I guess if things are happening online that are making bringing people towards some sort of spirituality of sorts, whatever it is, I guess that's good. It's a good impulse. Yeah. Uh,
2: my, my, cons- my concerns about the Internet and spirituality, um, which is to say I worry sometimes that the particular like architecture of the attention economy means that what we're dealing with is not is not just well, we have, we have obvious kinds of power. Uh, you know you could you can you can like hit the other guy because you've got a bigger sword or you have more money or what have you. And I do find it troubling, but interesting that the kind of power discourse online is a kind of ability to shape reality, to have people want to say want to look at the things that you say, use the things that you say as part of their own clout building or clout chasing or what have you such that there is a kind of power of storytelling that seems very specific to the online space. And at at times I think that the power of shaping reality with words is the kind of demonic version, take that as literally as, or as non-literally as you feel uh, of what storytelling ought to be. And I think coming from the perspective of being a writer, especially a writer who believes there's some kind of moral or even spiritual potential to the act of writing well, the idea that uh, it's all, like, discursive Nietzschean power games and whoever, like, wins the memes, like, shapes reality around them does seem, like, I don't think you can get away from the relationship between the kind of... the posited good novel, or the posited ideal novel, which does not exist, and or unless you then want to go down the like, Christian biblical route of that argument, but maybe I don't want to do that just yet. Um, but then suddenly what the discursive norms of online reality do feel like a dark mirror of that attempt of is, you know, is writing about storytelling story about power or storytelling about an attempt, however imperfect, at getting to the truth. And those seem to be like at odds with one another as approaches to the very problem we're discussing.
3: Yeah, I think that was a, that was a great point. Um, I, I um, When you were talking, I was thinking about how, you know, even when I post or something like that, um, you know, you're always kind of aware of, I mean, you know, uh, uh, it likes or responses or this or that, you know, this kind of thing, you know, molding it to get a certain response. And um, one of the things that I've thought about in terms of at least the way that I write novels um, is that, and especially when I'm doing first drafts or other, other drafts and so on, is that I try and write, like you're saying, um, uh, with an orientation toward truth. And so that, what that means is that I'm less concerned about, um, a pre pre-planned outcome you know I think uh, uh, Simone de Beauvoir uh, wrote about how um, you know novels are exciting because the characters seem free and and you know of course they're not free either in between two covers um, but that one way that this is achieved is when the, the the author themselves doesn't know what the character sort of reveals themselves to the author as they're writing and I think that like in any kind of speech act or in life in general if I'm operating from a place of, of, of faith, or of truth, and I'm not so concerned with manipulating others to specific ends of mine. Um, and I think that you're right that the, the the sort of architecture of social media lends itself well to the
0: kind of like
3: scheming that you know you know uh, um, yeah
0: yeah. And I, I want to say on this point that you bring up Tara about how novels. How we might use them as a as a tool to enforce some kind of ideology, some kind of worldview. But if we take this to the other end of the internet discourse, um, novels that are used to put forward some kind of noble social cause, some kind of moralistic uh, some kind of moralistic message. Um, a lot of people complain that you know this dampens our imagina- our literary imagination. It, it produces works of literature that you know sounds just like everybody else's. So going back to what you are saying, Jordan about Girard and the kind of mimetic effect of um, of certain language, again, having to do with certain social causes. Um, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on I don't know, the effect that that kind of discourse has, ha- has had on literature. Is there a way to break out of this kind of mimetic pattern, whether it's you know the kind of uh, the trad-based red-pilled kind of discourse, whether it's the social justice, the progressive kind of discourse, how do we become like original how do we say something that's our own
1: um, yeah i I think a novel is not um, a device to like advocate for like a social cause um I, th- I think I read an essay by someone at some point. I think she called that kind of literature sanctimony literature. Um, Bechdel, sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, any novel where it's like like clear who the good guys are, who the bad guys are. Uh, uh, an author who doesn't treat all his characters or her characters with tenderness and sympathy and uh, has you know is derisive and. Um, yeah, I don't think that's literature. I think uh, that's propaganda. and uh,
2: yeah. i'm I'm struck cause I, I, I want to like defend the moral quality of the novel, even though I think I aesthetically like recoil at the kind of sanctimony literature as a phenomenon that that you describe. Um, and i, I like I, I don't know whether one way of framing it is like a true orientation to like what is actually good, such that like, a, a rightly ordered moral novel is is a good piece of literature, and like a wrongly ordered moral excuse me, moral novels like a burlesque of that. But I think I think that there's definitely evil novels. Let's put it that way. And I think that for me, what I would describe like in, under the category of the the evil novel is something that uses the to, the seductive tools of literary storytelling in order to Uh, create complicity with evil and I I think it's funny a lot of the the things I have in mind are actually kind of slight um they're they're examinations of this theme so I don't know how I put them in this category or even things like the the short stories of Barbie Dorelli or these sort of vampiric 19th century tales where the storyteller is also a kind of you know murderer seducer or violator Um, But I do think, Huelbeck, I really really don't like Huelbeck. He could be be a nice example of this. But where where the kind of storytelling power is is designed to kind of have us all giggle and smile and nod that we're better than other people and we know the right things and they don't. And perhaps, uh, I'm, I'm now talking myself round into sanctimony literature being a kind of version of that too, that if something that does exist to make us feel good about ourselves that we're on the right side of a particular issue whether it's sort of diabolically seductive and we're you know so happy we're not like those normies with their bourgeois morality over there or we are so happy that we're not like those people with the bad political opinions i think it is the same it's a kind of pornographic reading of confirming our priors and picturing ourselves the as the good guys in in the in the novel but I don't think that like the fact that sanctimony literature, if we want to call it that, is very, very annoying, uh, gets us off the hook that writing is a novel, novelizing is a moral act, because I think all acts of creation are moral acts. The are responses to the possibility of creation, whether or not it's from a Christian perspective where there's a divine creator and this is in dialogue with that, or there is some other worldview. Um, I think there is a sort of implicit assumption about the act of creation that happens in every act of creation uh that a human being can do and the only way to say that there is like no more uh, maybe i'll say it say it like this there is a moral assumption encoded or a moral worldview encoded and that worldview couldn't be be a kind of bleak nihilistic one i personally think that is evil uh but i like can imagine being wrong on that point um but i I, wa- I, mean, I, I I kind of like want to work out together how we hold on to the moral quality of the novel without being really annoying. <laughs> Jordan, do you have an answer for us?
3: Um, by writing well, you know what I mean? I mean, I think I think part of what's so annoying about this kind of I like I like sanctimony literature um, as, a, as a phrase. But part of what's so annoying about it is just that it sucks. As literature, you know, and I think that um, there's been this weird move in the humanities, um, um, you know, and in literary spheres lately, where um, my friend Michael Clune wrote this book called *The Defense of Judgment*, and in it, he talks about how, you know, uh, many humanities scholars would feel uncomfortable saying something like, "Reading Henry James is better than watching *The Apprentice*." You know, suddenly, suddenly, right? Suddenly, you know, people—people people whose job it is—is is to make aesthetic decisions, uh, judgments. Have kind of like eschewed their responsibility to make judgments, or at least pretended to, and they've replaced it with these kind of thin, moralizing judgments, right? They still make judgments, but they're along moral lines. You know, they read with the red pen, okay, here's the sexism, here's the race, you know, whatever. And part of what is so uh, troubling about that is that is that they've, they, you know, um, writers have, have, many have sort of lost. The sense of like a, like a truly literary sensibility, you know, their concerns are thin and, and, and moralistic, as opposed to literary, you know, uh, having to do with with, with style and, and and things like this. But I think that the but I but I agree actually with 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 Tara, which is that like it's it's totally um you know. People will help respond to this and say, you know, novels should be amoral or immoral, or you know, there's there's no nothing, you know, it's it's just purely aesthetics and da 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 da. And I think that that's wrong too. I think that, um, um, you know, on the one hand, you know, I'm trying to think of like, um, you know, there, there I mean, I I guess I don't know. Crime and Punishment is like a cliche to bring up, but it's just such a great novel. And you know, it it, it, it it's you know, it's it's it's, it's 550 pages of a of a murderer just wigging out, and um, and 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 you know you feel for him, you know he's he's kind of this you know he fancies himself this Napoleon esque figure and so on, and uh, you know Dostoevsky is not just um, pointing a finger at him and kind of grinding him into dust so that when you're reading it you just feel like I'm so much smarter than Raskolnikov, you know it's like he's doing he's doing something you know uh, uh, way different I th- and but it's clearly from a moral perspective you know it's infused all throughout with with Dostoevsky's um, moral perspective moral perspective and I think that like um, you know I mean I, I aspire to, to something like that you know I mean I, it, it's hard to escape the question of morality especially if you are trying to be a serious person um, a serious artist whatever um, but I think that um, you know is it too much to ask that the, that the novel uh, uh, you know has a has a particular moral view and is also written well you know I, I don't know um, but I think that that is that's maybe one way of of of, of dealing with that. Um, not to hog the mic, but you did ask about you know like how to sort of escape from the discourse and write something original or whatever. And I mean you can just log off or you know I mean Kierkegaard had this idea that you know all true creative expression um, you know is born of what he called inwardness. You know, and I think that you know constantly clicking and looking around and this kind of thing it makes it very hard to kind of like actually have some well. Within to, to draw on you know and you you just think you're res- responding to stimuli and this that and the third and I think like um you know I mean for me I mean you know for me like things like 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 prayer or just you know uh uh, uh you know meditation or, or reading you know things uh um and and kind of sitting with them you know he thought silence was a prerequisite for you know, for speech, you know, and I think that like, there's so much chatter and, and talkativeness and all this, that it feels like impossible to escape. It's just like, ah, you know, um, but then you log off. I mean, I've, I've spent time like, you know, just completely not online and it just goes away. Like it just straight up goes away. And, you know, if in, in terms of writing something originally, like you can just choose different models, you know, like you can read different books or respond to different things and, and just kind of like, you know, absent yourself from the, from the discourse and it,
0: it, it, things change. You know? Um, I mean, Henry James is pretty good, but The Apprentice—it's I mean, not—it's not, it's not both that good. bad. Yeah, both good. <laughs> I mean, I do have to confess, in middle school, I think I watched every single episode, the regular Apprentice and the Celebrity Apprentice. I but yeah, yeah. I mean, it's—it's it's a performance art. It's a in our, t- our form of its own. No, but back—I think the point that you bring up, Tara, about. Managing to point to some kind of moral good through your literature without preaching, without turning your book into propaganda, I mean, it's it's a fine line to tread. But what's interesting about all of your novels, when I finished reading them, I felt like they did make me contemplate like, yes, what is the purpose of life? What is truly good? Without preaching at me, without kind of falling into these, uh, these overly used tropes that like you say, the sanctimonious type of novels, you know, they fall into. Um, but also, I want to bring up there are shots fired at Welbeck. I know some people kind of like him here. No, but um, speaking of Welbeck, whether you like him or not, the use of humor in literature. I mean, all of you guys in your novels use it um, in very particular ways. I mean, one of the things that Matt and I discussed in our podcast discussion, he has this way of weaving in this very, very subtle humor that's that's not super in your face, not overly ironic, but that I don't know, like it gets these. These little giggles while making you really think about what, what's going on in the character's life. And Jordan, you have your own brand of humor between uh, mocking the, uh, the ex-friend on, on Twitter. And it, again, like it, humor in novels makes it a lot more fun to read, but it also makes you think. At the same time, humor can become overly ironic. It can become overly sarcastic. And like you said, Tara, perhaps a little nihilistic. So I don't know. What role do you think humor plays in good literature when is irony too ironic? When is it too sarcastic? What do you make of that?
3: I want to say just on the subject of uh, moral literature that does a good job. My wife Nicola Pollack has a novel coming out, Bitterwater Opera. It's gonna be great. I just had to, I had to plug it really quick. Uh, <laughs> um, 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 it, it, it meets the categories, um, but I no, I um, um, I mean one one thing that <laughs> one thing that I uh, that I um, uh, have thought about. I mean, I like Bakhtin's idea that the novel sort of arises uh, in the tradition of what he called the serio-comical. You know that there was you know the, uh, the epics and so on, and the novel kind of arises almost as a parody. You know that it's always engaging with these other forms and a sort of Inherently ironic way, um, and so I think like there there's something about um, um, the novel that lends itself really well to like um, to, to to humor and, and and irony as as a mode. You know, I mean even even um, you know the sort of narrator having an ironic relationship with the the author and themselves or or this kind of thing. Um, but I, I mostly just you know, I mean I I think part of it too is 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 that like I do enjoy reading, and so I you know and I like when books make me laugh. And not in a cheap way, but like they surprise me. You know, there's something very satisfying about kind of being surprised and kind of laughing involuntarily. It's this like very visceral kind of thing, um, and I and I enjoy it. And I but I but I think um, um, you know I used to use it I think some to some degree as a defense mechanism, um, um, but now um, yeah I, yeah I, I just I just I just I just like when a novel novel's funny or um, yeah.
1: Uh, yeah uh, I don't know I, I think a, like in a lot of like reviews about my book they sort of like refer to it as satirical and um, I think Stephen I talked about this once before but like my narrator he's uh, he's very very sincere and like I don't actually think he's capable of irony and the you know, when I when I think of like uh, satire, I think of like you know using humor to sort of uh, you know criticize uh, something uh, and mock it. But I I don't think in my book that I was t- attempting to satirize anything at all. I think I was trying to portray the world as it is through the. From from like objectively from 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 the narrator who's yeah he's got a, a little bit of a skewed world skewed worldview um, but yeah uh, sort of lost my train of thought there but but um, yeah I'm not using like humor to like mock anything and I'm I'm trying to show the world as it is and the world happens to be that people behave badly. People are be, behave in very, very funny ways, and you know, I'm just showing the way that this guy objectively was looking at the world, and it's it, it to some people it came out funny, and, um, and I'm glad people people you know that's probably the the the, the, the feedback I've received most about is it. that it's it's a funny book. It just won some big humor award, and so I was happy to hear that and. Uh, <laughs> So,
2: yeah. (laughs) That's really cool, yeah. Congratulations, Matthew. (laughs) Which Humor Award? Sorry, it's the
1: worst time for you to. uh, It's called the uh, New York City Big Book uh, um, Award, and there's a humor category.
2: Awesome. Cool. (laughs) Well, what I love about humor in novels uh, is that... (laughs) drinking your water i don't know why it set me off um it's tragedies don't have humor in them the same way like the the genre of the thing that is a tragedy and i i love a good greek tragedy like there's something about being watching that like i i I saw a production of oedipus rex last um summer that was just like gutting and yet as as a phenomenon experiencing like theatrical tragedy it's unrelenting it is bleak it is a particular worldview that you are all in in the moment um the novel doesn't afford that which is not to say that there can't be tragic novels but i think the the precise going going back to sort of my 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 original thesis which may or may not be completely wrong that novels are about the insufficiency of perspective i think there's like different ways that the narrative the voice of the narrator, that the, sort of the authorial perspective can see human frailty and human self-delusion. And one of them is sort of the like paradigmatic tragic lens, like you don't know yourself very well and that is why you kill your dad and fuck your mom. And it's probably too late for that to end up okay. Um, probably. I, I don't want to rule that out uh, as, a, as a like novelistic experiment. Um, that, that sounds like a Mel Brooks joke, like Oedipus Rex, but it's a comedy. Um, but I think that like with the novel, like, this is what Jane Austen does so well. This is what George Eliot does so well. This actually Dostoevsky does this really well. He's really funny. Is the way in which self-delusion can have tragic results, but the mismatch between a like deluded person and reality is is closer to like you've done something really stupid and your friend just like taps you on the shoulder and just gives you that look. And that that like that relationship of, of author to character or of, or of narrator to character can often be like. The, the the tragic recognition gets transformed to something that's it's not like it's not all bad in the world but that s- self-delusion tends to make us worse and the world is a worse place in most of our self-delusions i think it's rare uh or it's a very particular kind of ge- like generic in the sense of genre phenomena like the holy fool that there are characters for whom the world is a good place, that are discover it's a bad place, and even then, like maybe Michigan in, in, in *The Idiot*. But even then, I think the, the, the great, the best novels are able to use humor to kind of expand the possibility of what can happen in the world, rather than limit it to like the singular tragedy.
3: Nice. That's good. Yeah. As you you were talking, I I completely agree with everything you said. That was well said and brilliant. But I was remembering that I actually did a panel at the Brooklyn Book Festival called Laughter Amid the Ruins. It was supposed to be about humor. Um, um, And the people I was reading with were this is no point to the story, but the people people I was reading with were like reading, um, and everyone was laughing, and I had like no idea what was funny. And the whole thing was supposed to be about humor and literature. And the whole conversation was about how horrible climate change was and the rise of fascism and this, that nothing was this gravely serious situation, um, you know, that they were, you know, that they were all kind of like inhabiting or whatever. Um, and, uh, but I but I was like, oh, I did a panel about this, but I couldn't remember anything, anything that I said about it. But it was, but that's my, anyway, here's the mic back.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it
0: was, it was fairly, no, I, I think, I mean, to sum it all up, I think we just need to laugh more. I think we'd be a little bit better off. If we took ourselves a little less seriously. And I think all of your novels kind of help you help us to do that as the reader. Um, but I do want to go back to, to internet stuff, zooming away from the discourse and more just about screens, more broadly speaking. Um, I mean it's something, Tara, that comes up in self-made about, I don't know, like the, the kind of solipsistic attitude that that um, that extreme internet usage kind of brings out of us. And also for the novelist, I mean he he's constantly distracted by Twitter. So I'm wondering, I don't know, can you say something about the effect you think screens have had on our experience as readers, but also for you guys as writers? Like what, what do you see happening?
1: Bad.
2: Bad. <laughs> so I'm only able to write a good draft of a novel if I don't have access to a smartphone. Like. I full on like turn off the internet in my apartment, switch to a flip phone. Best month of my life. Like it's like I've done it for the past two novels for the final draft. Uh, I'm always so much happier to the point where I'm 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 trying to figure out what a long-term sustainable solution would be. Like, do I get an Apple Watch that I can leave my phone at home and just get texts and calls? And it's really weird because you can only text by like talking into it, uh, like you're a Russian spy or something, but it's, uh, but you do get, you can stay on the group chats that way, I've discovered. Um, So I I don't know if it is feasible to like, not have a smartphone as a person uh, in New York in 2024, but just purely anecdotally, I cannot overemphasize how much better it was for my work, for my reading, for every part of my life, when I did not have access to one and I did not have internet at home, so uh, do try this at home, I couldn't keep it up, uh, I keep thinking that I'm going to do it again, maybe I will, no, I said in front of all of you, No, I might um, but yeah, it's, it is it, it is better it is, good, it is better for, for the work
1: yeah, I mean yeah, that's it right, uh, sometimes I try and do like a digital Sabbath on weekends and uh, that definitely feels pretty good, and uh, when I go out at night, I try to sometimes leave my phone at home um sets my friends but because I'm hard to get a hold of or I just don't show up and then they don't have a way to get a hold of me um but uh yeah I don't know what else there's to say about this this subject sometimes I like use the internet while when I'm writing because I think my attention span is kind of short so I can like write hard for like 20 minutes and then I need to like check, like, the basketball scores or something, and then that'll be, like, a nice diversion for, like, a minute, and then I can, like, go back into it, and, uh, yeah.
3: I'm trying to think. I mean, I, you know, I, yes, I, it, I, you know, I wrote a whole novel about a guy who keeps getting distracted by the Internet, basically, and I think part of that was you know, I was, you know, I mean, I, I obviously get distracted by the internet a lot, and I was able to just, like, funnel it into some sort of productive thing or whatever. Um, but also, like, I didn't go to school for writing. I didn't live here. I didn't, you know, I was, I've was, i been able to, the, the internet, I mean, just to, all the all the bad things that are said about it are basically true, I think, but that being said, like, I was able to meet. Other, other other writers, I was able to, to publish young because of online literary journals. Um, I've been able to kind of like uh, you know without, without having like um, traditional access to various like literary or academic zones I've been able to like do you know publish books and essays and things like this like because of the internet you know and even things like um, being able to look things up real quick uh, or or you know, try and remember uh, a word or whatever, um, or, or 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 something like that, has been useful, I guess. I mean, the, the, the sort of shredding of the attention and and so on um, is not great, and I've taken breaks from being online too. Um, but it's hard for me to just completely knock it because it's done so many. I mean, it's just just practically speaking, done so many great things for me, and even for my writing, like you know, being able to read like different writers. You know, back in the day—not back in the day, wasn't that long ago—but like, you know, different writers' blogs or, or these kinds of things, are just like, you know, knowing where to look and finding different authors. Op- I mean, like all this stuff I did online, you know, when I was like, when I was young. Um, and so for me, it, it has been a sort of—it's um, been—it's been both good and bad, you know. Um, but I um, am incredibly recently I've been thinking about, it. like, man, I'm like really grateful that, like, I, you know, it was just able to like do all this stuff online, like make it happen, you know? Um, Which has been, yeah, which has been, which has been great. Follow me on Twitter, Jordan, at Jordan underscore Castro two.
0: Without the internet, there'd be no Substack, and this wouldn't be happening, so it's kind of important. Um, Does anybody have a flip phone? Who actually has a flip phone? One, okay, It's pretty cool, I'm jealous. Um, Okay, so last question before we wrap things up. Let's talk about writing rituals. What, what's your
1: writing ritual look like? What do you What do you do? Um. So my writing ritual is uh, I work really hard for like two years at my day job, and then I generally quit, <laughs> and I go somewhere foreign and remote. And um, I only have a limited amount of time before I run out of money, so I'm very disciplined. So. Uh, I write quickly uh, and I keep like very strict hours like I'm at the desk at like 9 a.m. five days a week and I have like, keep like a word count I'm like you have to hit a thousand words every day five days a week for three months or four months um, to get that first draft done and every day I'm sort of uh, terrified that this is like the day that it's like not going to work for me like today's the day where like I, I'm not a writer anymore. And, uh, like, I'm not even really a big drinker or anything, but I literally at 9 a.m. usually have, like, a drink. Um, at, <laughs> just to, like, ease me into it, because I'm afraid. <laughs> I really do. And um, But, you know, I think they're, like, we were talking about, like, the spirituality aspect of it. I think when you get your butt in the chair and, like, do the work, that there is sort of this, like, the, I think the act of cre- like cre- creation is sort of magical and a gift, and that like when you actually just sit down to do the work, there is some sort of like divine intervention sometimes that comes in and like bails you out. And I o- I often think that like my work is like when I go back and look at it, I'm like this is beyond the sort of narrow limits of my abilities, and I think it's like the best version of myself is what, what's in the work. Uh, certainly better than me speaking out loud. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, 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 I finished Pure Cosmos School probably two years ago. And I haven't written a word of fiction since then. Because I really just do it in these like little bursts. So I've been in my money making phase, uh, my, my time of making money. And uh, I am uh, leaving next week uh, to, to go write a novel. and. Uh, Hopefully it works out. We'll see. Um,
2: yeah, I, um, I I write really really bad drafts, and those I just turn out, and then at some point I throw them out and write a, like a better draft, and throw it out, and write a better draft, and then one I' ready to get close to the real draft. Uh, work at home, scented candle, usually uh, sort of incensorial by Boy smells uh, smoke and amber by Patty Wax, some like nice nice like smells like a church, woody smoky vibes. Uh, And I just don't have internet from either Monday to Friday or the whole time. Uh, Or I can go to a cafe and, like, check my email once a day. Or I can have, like, an Apple Watch that tells what the email is where I can't really respond. But other than that, um, yeah. And then I write a really manic draft and then I edit it. But I do have to just be in that space uh, and away from distraction and... I start to experience a kind of ecstatic way of being in the world that I always think like why am I not like this all the time uh, I know I'll never go back on my phone again like a week later I'm on Twitter but uh, I, it's worked the past two times I may I have a novel that I want to write uh, when I get back from a vacation in a couple weeks and I may try that for a first draft and see how it goes um, but I don't know whether the first draft will be so bad by virtue of being a first draft that being like stuck with it will make me miserable, yeah. we'll see
3: um, I like to write in the morning. I get up and write. Um, I don't really have, but I mean, I also write like on my phone. I write all the time or edit stuff a lot. I think with the novels, like I normally kind of just um, wrestle with things. I mean, I don't outline. I don't. It's sort of somewhat chaotic. I mean, I kind of like I like to write and then sort of see what's there and maybe I'll extract an outline out from that and then go back in and do that a few times. Or, uh, but it really is this process of like seeing what I've done. You know, at least for the novels. Um, and kind of working, working from there. But um, yeah, I write a lot. I mean, I write really anytime. You know, anytime I have a thought, I'll like write it in my phone. Last night I was like falling asleep, and I was like, oh, I had a thought. I like write it in my phone. You know, this kind of thing. Or driving You know, driving. I like to write while I drive. You know. <laughs> um, um, uh, uh, and I, I yeah. And um, uh, so yeah, but the morning is kind of the, the sweet spot for me, at least, especially like generative writing, editing. I because the ninety. of my writing is editing. And so like, um, and and that can take a very, very, very long
0: time. And so it's it's, it's like a different kind of thing. But like normally when I'm like writing, writing, it's like first thing in the morning. So uh, just to kind of bring things together, I want to mention, this isn't necessarily a novel, but a book by Dorothy Day, who's the founder of The Catholic Worker. Let's hear for The Catholic Worker for just a second. So Dorothy Day, founder of The Catholic Worker, she lived here, she died upstairs and wrote a book called The Long Loneliness, among several other books, and basically uh, the kind of crux of this book is this, this understanding that as humans, we all experience this long loneliness, this sense that we're isolated in the world, we're misunderstood, we're always longing for something, and that the reality is no other human can totally fulfill that loneliness, but at the same time, on a paradoxical level the solution to that loneliness is love. We could say a form of transcendent love that's mediated to us through community. And I think what's really great about good novels is that they're a, form, they're a force of, um, of really bringing people together, of generating community, generating important discussions about society, about human nature, the purpose of life. And this is part of the reason why, you know, in cracks in postmodernity, we don't wanna just stay on Substack, stay on the podcast, espousing outlandish ideas. We want to bring people together. We want to have discussions like these. So I I want us to just to to kind of meditate on this, close with this thought about how reading a good book can bring us together and start these conversations with others. Um, But before we go, we have a little tradition at these events. We play a game called Hot or Not. So I'm gonna just go through a list of random things. You guys have to decide. No, I mean, of course you're all hot. I mean, we all we can all see it. Um, no, so we're gonna. I'm gonna list a couple random things, and you guys are gonna say if it's hot or not. And the audience, you can help them out if you want. Um, okay, so the first thing we're gonna do. Oh, this is very controversial. Taylor Swift, hot, uh, no, hot. Uh, yeah. Okay, really? All right. I'm not, I'm not I, I like race. that one. No, we're not judging her appearance. We're not trying to get canceled. Uh, all right, we'll 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 say Taylor Swift's music is hot. Um, what about Soul Cycle? Is Soul Cycle hot or not? No, it's not. It's definitely not. Um, thinking about ancient Rome. It's hot. Okay, all right, we'll go with it. Um, the very controversial Ray Pete diet. Is that hot? I don't even know what it is. Ultimately, I think it's like raw egg slunking or something no okay it's all the same to me so i'm going to say no it's not hot um yeah. elon musk Aww. really okay that was a surprising one elon musk. yeah like no 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 but then no. Maybe. maybe no the no at the end it's a definitive now. all right so for some of us um reading books on a kindle Have, No. It's no, it's definitely not. No. Um Ice Spice? Is Ice Spice Hot? We don't know who I audiences Ice Spice Hot. I I'm gonna have to say yes. Yeah, she's a she's a rapper. If you don't know, then go on uh TikTok. Okay, so reading books on the subway, is that hot? Uh, I I actually was reading Jory's book
1: on the subway. <laughs> on the, on the That's
0: how hot uh, I was. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, so reading on the subway.
1: Definitely, yeah.
0: definitely. Um, shit posting on the internet? Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. I mean, we know some <laughs> of us here do not. it. i like, like, yeah. yeah. All right, all right. We'll let that one slide. Um, Jung? Is Jung hot or not? Carl Jung? Absolutely not No, <laughs> no. Jerusha is my
1: authority on,
0: on, on this sort of thing. That she says about. No, okay, Jerusha knows best. Freud is Freud hot? Yes, he is hotter than you. I mean, he went to some crazy ragers, snorting some white stuff. Um, okay, last one: the Catholic Worker is it hot or not? It's very hot. Let's uh, let's thank the Catholic Worker again, and let's thank Tara, Matt, and Jordan
1: for coming out. All
0: right.
1: Yeah. Um, we had an assignment to uh, bring our novels to, uh, to not really sell. It's sort of like a suggested donation. Not even a suggested donation. You can make a donation if you want. I'm the only one who um, uh, d- did the assignment and brought my books. So I have a box of them over here, and you can take them. And if you want to make a donation, you can find my um, Venmo. You can ask me, and, I'll, and you can make a donation to me. Um, and I guess Tara has an idea.
2: Uh, yeah, if you would like to buy my book commercially, you can just go to theavaloncabaret.com, which will direct to your pre-order. Uh, however, if you would like to pay what you can for a PDF, I will email you a PDF and you can pay whatever you want. So but you have to talk to me and like tell me your email address and stuff.
3: I'm assuming that everyone here has already read The Novelist by Jordan Castro. <laughs> so I don't need to, uh, I'll just give it back to Stephen
0: now so see them if you want to buy a copy um, i also have the uh, the links to the uh, to the sites where you can purchase them on the substack um so also if you can please consider giving a donation to the catholic worker they work very hard here they're very gracious welcoming us here so there's a donation little gold donation box in the back please leave a little something for them if you can manage um also we want to thank our sponsors hestia tobacco and masa chips You can take some cigarettes, some chips in the back. Please don't smoke them inside. We don't wanna get the fire department here. Um, And also we have the little QR code if you want a discount to buy some masa chips there. I think they're- We're we're gonna get to that in a second. Don't worry, don't worry. Um, No, so the masa chips, I think they're repeat approved. There's no seed oil. They're really good, so you should eat them for that reason. They're in the back. Um, If you don't already follow us on the Substack, you should Cracks and Pomo. Substack, the podcast, all the socials, um, and we're gonna try to head out here around what time is it? It's 8:30. So like maybe 20 minutes, we're gonna start heading over to the KGB Red Room. If you wanna join us, uh, but thanks everyone for coming.